some um, reflections on the nature of citta. This is channel three in our broadcast. Um, to reiterate the specifics of this particular channel, um, this is the affective tone, the affective flavor of our experience. Um, again, there is no straightforward uh, English equivalent to the term. Uh, emotion is part of citta, but is not the only thing that is happening in the channel uh, three of citta. There are most notable impulses in there. What you know, we could most broadly term volition. So anything to do with wishing things, with longing for things, with rejecting things, um, anything to do with intentionality, if this would be the conscious part of volition, and also some forms of volition that may not be completely acknowledged to the daylight consciousness. Yeah? So. Uh, since Freud, we know that there are things we want without knowing that we want them. Yeah. Before that, it seemed, if I'm honestly turning inwards, I'm capable of ascertaining what it is that I want. And if there isn't anything there, I can be sure there isn't anything there. Uh, at least since Freud, we know this is not the case. Buddhists have always known this. Just because it's calm on the surface, it doesn't mean there is no crocodile in the water, okay? <laughs> Or no happy, you know, humpback whale might emerge any moment. So, uh, chitta, think of chitta as a sort of habitat of the mind. It is th through the state, through the coloring of our mind's current state, we experience the world. It's more difficult to discern citta as a so-called object or a content of experience. With Vedana, this is a lot easier because they are generally discernible, they are generally appearing rather fast, uh, both in the pleasurable and the unpleasurable form. So there is a distinct contrast value. Something spikes with Vedana. Yeah? Um, with citta, this is not the case. So some things are very noticeable. We get angry about something or we get a good message and our heart leaps with joy. We're clear this is the origin of a state, but some states are slow. You know? The gradual onset of a grumpiness may not be discerned by the victim of that state. Uh, as you all know, depression can settle in quite slowly. And it's there's a stage when an ordinary dysphoric low mood is not easily distinguishable from the onset of a, a depressive relapse. You know? A few things need happen and if they come together things go down this way or go down that way. So not all of our states, mind contents, we easily discern. That has to do with the nature of experiences in that third channel. Some of them come in like fog. You know? the, other problem is a problem that will insult all scientists here because introspective practice is an intrinsically messy business. You know, if this was proper science, then we would have a clear object of investigation, we would have a clear status questionis, well, what is known in the field, what is the current question. We would have parameters for our experiments. We would have clean definitions, say, of mindfulness, <laughs> of confusion, of ignorance, <laughs> of greed. You know, we would have clear meters for that. We have neat scales. Um, we had good lighting. We had excellent laboratory condition, the latest brand of computers. We, we could calculate models of possible hypothetic outcome and so forth. We could do wonderful things under very, very laboratory conditions. Now, meditation, as you know, is not like that. It's like, you know, a beckoning sign, come in and be happy, 
very simple exercise will make you free. And then this kind of a rickety stair going down into a dimly lit basement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You suddenly realize your hands are all grubby, and then there is a kind of a, a workshop kind of outfit, but all the tools are in a mess. And you don't really know what is actually my object of investigation, what are my tools, what are my experimental parameters, what is the gauge, you know, and it's kind of, yeah, it's a little like that. So it's the horror of every <laughs> self-respecting scientist. And then at the end, if you're lucky, somebody rings a bell. Yeah. <laughs> I exaggerate. <laughs> but you do get the gist, isn't it? It's highly subjective, and it's clear that the very mind that is trying to understand its own functioning is affected by the state it tries to understand better. So uh, the tool by which we try to understand functioning of mind, by which we try to modulate mind uh, components, is actually already affected by the state we're trying to investigate. Yeah. So we cannot, if we're depressed, meditate our way around depression. We, we, we have to find a way from within that state. If we're restless, we have to find a way to... Uh, soothe that mind from a position of restlessness. If we're greedy, we have to convince that mind that what it wants is actually not going to deliver what it hopes. And even if it does deliver, it's not going to do what we expect it would do. And we have already done that a number of times and it hasn't delivered. And we, you know, we need to convince ourselves from a position where we are already affected by what we would like to understand and free ourselves from. So just to clear the map a little better, we had somatic experience, anything to do with body, felt senses, sensations, body tones, both localized, but also in reference to field awareness. Body is not just local individualized sensations, but we have uh, an experience of body as coherence, uh, we have an experience of body as taking volume. We have an experience of body as being not just physical, but also energetic, yeah, diffusely um, pulsating. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to identify body just with the bits we can clearly feel and anatomically uh, map. Yeah. There is more to body than that. Then we have Vedana, hedonic tone, pleasure, displeasure, on the basis of both mental experience, on the basis of physical experience. Then we have Chitta as mind content, you know, as states of mind. I'm just speaking of the raw material that the Satipatthana teachings actually have specific exercises and, and are asking in the third channel questions, um, after very specific qualities of mind, how how much desire is at work, or how free of desire a mind is, how confused it is, or how free of confusion it is, how aversive a mind is, or how free of aversion it is, how contracted it is, how scattered it is, whether it has become big, whether it has become expansive, whether it is uh, surpassable, or can you... Uh, yeah, wh whether it can still be cultivated or whether it has already become unsurpassable. So there's a, a number of very specific things. One of them, a crucial one, is about the degree of collectedness. So how much stillness is in that mind? If I experience a thought here, yeah, or if I experience a thought here, I can... There's a substantial difference in this. A thought here is much more likely that I'm going to identify with this, that I'm going to believe what I think. If I identify with a thought, it means I believe I am the content of the thought. Yeah. That's what we often do. Uh, I have a smart thought. I am happy that I have a smart thought. Then suddenly something strange happens. Because there is a smart thought, there must be somebody for whom that thought occurs. Yeah. And then the subject pops up. 
Yeah? And then the smart thought moves on and suddenly the subject becomes the owner of the thought or even the creator of the thought. The smart thought is gone, long gone, but the smart subject stays behind. Yeah? That's called identification. I reify, conveniently vague uh, on its terms of definition, a notion of self that gets its attributes from the content of my experience. This is all fine with smart, generous, compassionate thought. I may get in trouble if she has smarter thoughts, you know, <laughs> more generous, more compassionate, more selfless, yeah? And then, uh, you know, suddenly my little self gets into a tizzy with her little self or something like that. Or uh, even worse, I, I may have a really daft thought or a nasty thought or a kind of pop her eyes out thought or something like that, yeah? <laughs> and suddenly I become this person owner responsible for this thought and I become this horrible creature you know while I was a smart little guy before now I'm this horrible monster you know this sociopath undiscovered yet any moment can burst into a, some horror yeah. so my relationship to thought which remember I cannot control my thoughts truly yeah I can modulate some of them I can affirm some of them I can say some of them are important and some of them are not I can say this one is a wrong one because it's not it's against everything I know I can play tricks with thoughts but I cannot ultimately control what this mind is thinking yeah so if I have to become what I think I am at great peril yeah. I become all kinds of uh, you know this whole bestiary of thoughts that I can turn into if I identify with them. So, Chitan Upasana is a way that helps me relate to ownership and it, it's a way to help me monitor how I react, how the receptive part of my being reacts to the contents of my experience. There are other ways of relating to the contents of one's experience rather than either disowning them totally or identifying with them. For most people, this is already quite a step and a great relief. The difference in that step is the degree of stillness the mind has. The thought here is much more convincing than the thought here. If the thought is a further away, I am much more likely to recognize, ah, this is one of the things called thought. You know, all of these things they kind of pop out of nowhere, they do their number, they want something. Usually my thoughts, they say things to me, they say, you know, don't just sit here. Do me, I'm important. I'm your last good thought today. <laughs> Follow me, I will take you to the end of all thought. Or uh, Listen to me, I'm serious. They beg, they threaten, they plead, you know. My thoughts keep talking to me. They, there's a strong hortative character in there. They, they address me, they appeal to me in some ways. They want me to do something. Usually they want me to take them serious, to follow them, to meet their family, and so forth, you know. <laughs> and I'm off, yeah. We all know this is process called association, and uh, the Buddhist word for this is... Uh, fairly well known, it's called papancha. Uh, it's a conceptual proliferation, is a well-documented phenomenon. It's a sort of explosive fanning out of my discursive activity. You know? Somebody says blue and I'm off, you know. Blueness of sky, Andy Warhol, German idealism, Novalis, suicidal poetry, and I'm off, you know. <coughs> blue flower, I'm off, gone. Next moment of consciousness, bell. <laughs> this is called proliferation. And this proliferation is much more likely to take place if the mind is not still. Now, if the mind is still, it becomes more possible to recognize the contents of the mind as contents. Now, with thoughts, this is a little easier than with emotions because emotions move in. They kind of settle in. And they don't necessarily say what they do. They're not intrinsically self-declarative. I, I may be under the sway of an emotion, 
without acknowledging to myself that I'm under the sway of this emotion. If I'm impatient as an emotion, then I, it doesn't say, Akinjino, you're impatient. It just says, you're all lazy, slow, uh, you know, dim-witted. Yeah, that's what it says. When I'm angry, it doesn't say, Akinjino, right now you're angry. Then it says, Akinjino, you're right. Yeah? <laughs> yeah? So, that's, you know, emotions to do not necessarily say what they are to ourselves. They give us a feeling that the objective reality out there is triggering that state. But it's, in fact, it's possibly the state in here that makes the objective reality look the way it does look. So if I'm anxious, then you guys are all really risky people. You know? Everybody who's in here and comes close to me is really a potential threat. And you just have no idea of how, how delicate I am. Yeah. And uh, you're very dangerous people. You just, you know, you sneeze. All of you carry bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you threaten my delicate immune system. So, you know, depending on what this being here feels, how I, my self-construct, according to my self-construct, I begin to emote into the world. And this emotion bases um, my perceptions. Uh, perceptions which I then attribute objective reality to, and this objective reality then becomes the rationalization for the emotion that, that everything started off with. Yeah? It's taken me years to find out that my mother was afraid whenever she was telling me getting close to water that I was doing dangerous things. It's taken me years to figure that one out. She was just afraid of water. Yeah? Ah. But that wasn't what she said. She said, I'm the dangerous guy because I like to play in water, with water, on water, underwater. <laughs> you know? And I kept getting this message you know, that I'm dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. Yeah. That wasn't true. It's only taken me years of therapy and tw <laughs> 20 years of contemplative life to find out that <laughs> she was afraid. <laughs> And I wasn't actually doing anything particularly dangerous by the standards of human kids. So, you get my message here. The emotion that we experience looks for justification through exterior perceptual reality. Yeah. Contemplative exercises tries to acknowledge this and say, we create a world, we relate to that world on the basis of our emotional disposition and thereby we fortify both our relationship to that world and we create a self and we create a number of other beings that we then deem to be responsible for the emotions we experience. Yeah? Chris has already pointed that out. We, we're actually not terribly interested in things, if you look closely. We're interested in feeling pleasurable, avoiding unpleasure, and we're interested in feeling certain emotions. So if you really look, nobody wants to own a car. Yeah? Nobody wants to own one and a half tons of tin that cost money, guzzle fuel, need parking lots, you have to pay taxes for it. But we want a feeling of independence, freedom, mobility. You know, it gives us the freedom to move, this kind of thing. Yeah? We want the feeling of that. We don't want a thing. We identify the feeling with the thing the emotions, the sense of freedom, and all this. But actually, if you look at this, you rarely want a thing. You don't always want to be married to the same person. You, know? you want uh, intimacy, uh, comradeship, you, know, you want the companionable, the com companionability, you want sex, you want somebody there when you're old and tattery. You, you, know, you, you want all this. But you don't actually always want this person there in your life. Yeah? Sorry. Maybe it's... <laughs> Just to be clear, the same holds true for fellow monks. You know, I've lived for a time of my life with fellow monks. And uh, I found myself thinking, I like this guy, but why do I have to think so much about him? I wish I could think less about him. Well, 
we're quite ambivalent when it actually comes to looking more closely at our desire systems, isn't it? We can hold quite contradictory desires. Jitta yeah. upasana, um, the ability to actually begin to contemplate one's own process of affect, of wish, of longing, of the impulses connected with intention, um, is a powerful, powerful practice. We need to have our loins girded for this practice because the themes in Chitta Nupasana are very suggestive. They feel very much like me. We cannot contemplate them as easily as a thought. You know, if Once you know what a thought is, you can recognize, ah, this is a thought. This is what it says, but this is what it does. All of you guys pop up, do something, and then disappear. None of you guys has made me happy. There's many of you. All of you change. All of you don't belong to me. You can easily say that to thoughts. With emotion, it's much more difficult because emotions, they kind of sneak up on you. Yeah. The mind that is assailed by lethargy has to work from within lethargy to be with, to find a way to modulate its state. Yeah. So there's different ways we can do that. One way is to d you ground yourself as good as you can in body states. You learn to identify the embodied part of an emotion. So as soon as you feel an emotional affect taking hold of you or moving in or uh, expanding in you, you're trying to identify where in the body do I actually feel this. What is the, vo the body's vocabulary for sleepiness, for example? This is good. I can tell you mine, but you will have to figure out your own. Um, where does my body tell me that I am currently in the state of sleepiness? For me, there's a number of sensations around sort of a leaden flow around my eyes. Then there's a brittleness in my breath, uh, br something across my upper chest, a sort of hardness comes in. Usually stiffness in my neck, uh, then followed with a sort of tension definite tendency to lose my balance in some way, um, feeling that my energy is going into the lower part of my body, uh, feeling strangely lightheaded in the process. The, you know, I can describe a few of these phenomena. And one way to start realistically doing chitta upasana with the help of body awareness, and body is your friend in this, is identifying the differing bodily characteristics of an emotion. So where do I feel anxiety? Yeah. Where, does I, where, do, where in my body do I feel anxiety? What's the physical element of doubt? Yeah. What does that do in my body when I'm in the state of doubt? How does joy feel? How do I recognize a depressed body posture? In this particular body. This may also be applicable to other body postures. What does sadness to your face yeah? Mm -hmm. yeah you can you can practice that not that i suggest deepening this particularly but it's good to learn how this body bodies speak you know an emotion physiologically is totally embodied that's the really crazy thing that's why thought is so dangerous because the content of a thought that makes you sad may be utterly irrational. It may be 30 years ago since, the, since that event took place that makes you still sad. But the physiological response to a sadness that you've experienced 30 years ago is going to be replicated now. Yeah? You're going to transport the memory of a sadness right into the physiological present. You know, it'll start shaking your, your, your mimics. It'll shape your body posture. It'll be noticeable in your breath, in your metabolism. So you can keep, and this is really hor horrible, you can keep uh, warming up your past in most unfortunate ways and replicate it and prolong it into your future. Some people have understood this. Mark Twain, when he says, you know, some of the greatest horror of horrors of my life have never actually happened. <laughs> you, know, you, you can live in anxiety of something that never actually takes place, but you can keep 
turning your system into a state of hypervigilance and per perpetual alertness in the face of a danger that you deem imminent that will never really arrive. That is the, con the construct of your overwrought fantasy. Yeah. So emotion is huge in our lives. Emotion takes lots of energy. Emotion creates lots of meaning. Yeah. We seek meaning in emotion. Um, emotion is big. In it, it colors our thinking, it colors our perception, it colors our self-awareness, it colors obviously our behavior. You know, all this is propelled by emotion. So it's good to know one's emotion, not just the ones you are easy with, but also the ones that are going on. And one of the things that takes place in meditation when we have little input, when we spend much time sifting through uh, mind phenomena is emotions begin to constellate. You know, the longer amplitudes of our emotional life begin to become more noticeable. The short-term busyness falls away and the longer amplitudes begin to become more obvious that take place. That they're there all the time, but in the busyness of our uh, hurried lives, we don't pay attention. So it is likely that emotional states will go through this heart uh, as the days go on. You keep doing the same things, you eat breakfast, you walk you clean, you do your yogi job, you come and sit, and you will notice that sometimes you're elated and grateful, eye-wateringly inspired, and sometimes you're grumpy, and sometimes you're sad. And yeah, It's clear that there is an emotional process going on almost irrespective of what's happening outside. And it becomes more clear that we are in, uh, engaged and in relation to an emotional life that we deeply need to uh, understand more. Otherwise, this will keep running us in ways that we do not even detect that we are run by. So as meditators, first stop, you make sure that you have groundedness in your body. Without your body, you're lost. Emotion's going to pull you in into a vortex of intensity. That's what they do. Uh, you know, if sati is a prefrontal cortical uh, event, then we all know if you get a real hit from your amygdala, it's very likely that there isn't much left from your prefrontal cortex. Yeah, Just the pipes are just so big from there that the big flooders will just do you, do you in. Yeah? Anger, fear, doubt, all this can just wash you away. It takes a lot of scaffolding building for mindfulness to act backwards, you know, to change your structure. And as much as it is changeable, as unfortunately, if you stop practicing, it'll also <laughs> start undoing itself. You know, we all know that. If we don't keep doing it, we go back to a pattern uh, that is emotion-based. So, getting perspective on emotion means we need to create stillness. Only in stillness is it safe enough to actually start engaging more deeply to the emotional dimensions of our life. It'll become more obvious of the cycles in there. It'll become more obvious what conditions play. It'll become more obvious what is situational and what is old history. So gaining stillness is a prerequisite for doing chitta nupasana. Being able to go back to something that soothes my mind. Think of this as a shuttling practice. I think of this as shuttle diplomacy. You do some samatha exercises, as Chris suggested and described very nicely the other day, and then you try to be more aware of what's happening in the emotional dimension. When you notice you get roped in, you become part of the emotion rather than the witness of that emotion or the witness of the emotion's effect on your body. You need to go back to your stillness practice. You need to go back to the breath and to the posture. So be prepared to do that at least seven billion times, to quote, <laughs> to quote Jaya from last night, or Larry. So this is something you have to have the humility to keep doing. Shuttling between that which stabilizes and that which pushes the edge of my understanding further. Sati is a liminal quality. It probes into that which is not yet known fully. That means you will get it wrong. 
however good you are at this, you will get it wrong. You have to make it clear to yourself that it's legit to get it wrong, to get lost, to get swamped, to become emotional, to become sleepy, to become angry. This is necessary. I don't know, I don't know anybody who can do this without getting it wrong. This is the, you have to give yourself permission to get it wrong. If you do not give yourself this permission, then you will not experiment. You will not learn. You will stay within the confines of what you think is good and try to control it there. And that's the end of learning. That's the end of growth. So please give yourself permission to get it wrong and be savvy. Note when you're lost, when you're swamped somewhere, when you're stuck somewhere. Pull yourself out. There's no reason why I should continue a thought of which I know is not a, is going to lead nowhere. I can just raise my head and the thought goes past and I return to the body. I can choose to redress my attention to something I know is salubrious, is helpful. Three questions may be useful. There's one way I can... Acknowledge just the state of this mind right now. The bigger your vocabulary is for this, the more uh, competent you are in recognizing the goings in your own heart and mind. Yeah. The word heart and ch mind in, in used in Buddhist psychology interchangeably. Think of chitta as the place where a distinction between reason, intellect and emotion has not yet happened. The Buddha in a in ways that has been very annoying to the later interpretive traditions, has refused to define the term chitta. Think of it as a habitat through which you experience what you experience. Yeah. Three questions. One question is, how is it right now? Is this happy? Is this sad? Is this expansive? Is this contracted? Is it collected? Is it not collected. Um, can I discern any flavor? Is this annoyed, jealous? Is this elated? Is this jubilant? Is this euphoric? Is this tender? Is this hard? You know, we can begin to gradually identify different qualities in our emotional life right now and just learn to be with those, not even to fix them, change them, Measure them just to learn to be with them. Acknowledge them, they're there. Allow them to be there. Investigate them if you have the strength to. And uh, look what's happening. Another interesting question is looking at some of the things that arises in your mind. You know, a thought, image. And you begin to identify the emotion that propels this particular thought or image pattern. Yeah. Rather than playing with the thought, you're actually trying to get in touch with the emotion that propels this. Is this thought a thought of generosity? Is this thought a thought of kindness? Is this thought a thought of joy? Yeah. So rather than talking with the thought, arguing with it or believing it, you're actually trying to almost reach past it. You know. I think of a kind of a lake, sort of an inner lake, and on that lake you have little sailboats. And these little sailboats are floating, are sailing across the surface of that lake, and uh, you would be tempted to follow the sails on the boats with your eyes, but actually what you're interested in our exercise is to turn into the direction from which the wind comes that propels, that billows their sails. Yeah. So you're interested in, can you discern, let's say with hindrances, as meditators, these hindrances are basically three and a half out of five are forms of thought. Yeah. If you feel assailed by these uh, tenacious thought patterns, it may be worth actually identifying what the emotion I is that propels your particular type of thought. Just labeling them thoughts or calling them hindrances is useful, but it may be even more useful to actually identify the emotional pattern that fuels this type of thought. So the second question tries to look at the direction of the wind rather than following the sails, okay? The third, predictably, is uh, a follow-on from this. 
if you recognize thought pattern, image pattern, and I don't want to insult you, but if your thoughts are anything like mine, then some of them are repetitive. You know, they're not all very original. There's a very uh, decreasing sense of novelty in there for me, to be honest with you, you know, as the years go on. So I suspect it's similar to you. And many of the thoughts that come up in your mind, you can actually tell pretty clearly where this one will take you, you know, in two minutes, if you follow it, if you give it your attention, your energy. You know pretty much on which cliff this one will throw you in a moment. <laughs> yeah. And you, will, you contemplate, you know, this is a thought that takes me to despair. This is a thought that takes me to helplessness. This is a thought that takes me to unfulfilled longing. This is a thought that leaves me deficient and hopeless. This is a thought that makes me angry. We know that. Many of our thoughts are familiar. Many of our image pattern. Something in us reiterates a, a big situation which we know all too familiar. And the more we attend to this, the more we get into the state we hope to avoid. And we simply recognize this. We, rather than joining the hypnotic credibility of this particular thought or image pattern, we actually identify that we know where it's going to take us. Yeah. Thank you very much. This train leads to Tristania. I'm not boarding. Yeah. And I have a choice. You know, if I know where this is going to take me, if I know that this is not terribly pleasant or salubrious, I, I have a say in this. We don't have to follow all the thoughts that move up. They know, they beckon, they call, they appeal, but we don't have to. So I would like you to practice today with this. Um, moving be between stilling and probing into some of the emotional qualities that come up in your mind. If you find this is too confusing, go back to the breath. That's fair, totally legitimate. Um, if you can, try to identify the somatic dimension of a particular emotion. You know. How do I really feel hunger? Very simple. Go find out where do you really actually have a bodily sensation for hunger. How do you find gratitude affects your body? Where do you feel gratitude? Where do you feel doubt? How does it feel when you're not sure about something you think you should be sure of? You know. Good. Thank you for your attention. Let's sit for a moment. So take stock of your posture, adjust, wriggle a bit so that you feel you're upright, practicing with the paradox of uprightness and maximum relaxation. And then let us sink our gentle and curious attention into the field of the body. Not just individual sensations, but envelop whatever textures, whatever sensations we find in our body, envelop them in a kindly, respectfully curious, attentional awareness. feeling something and then try to grow around it with our attention. Sometimes little questions help. Where does it end? What's the edge of it? What is it connected with? What comes behind it or after it? 
The idea is to expand your body awareness into a more or less coherent field awareness of embodied presence. Something attuned, something gentle, something welcoming. Letting in. I'm not trying it what it should do. I'm not trying to impose a technique on it. I'm actually trying to, to visit, to receive. Think of a bunch of kids discovering a house, an empty house, and they kind of visit rooms, climb upstairs, inspect the basement. A house full of wonders. Curious of what's there. They don't know what they look for. And yet they're completely there, curious. That's the beauty of it. I think of a quality of amazement. Amazed at what's there. Amazed at something that I don't have any concepts for. Exquisitely sensitive, with no expectations, with no plans. A willingness to deep, affectionate connection without any demands. Breathing into that embodied space and at the end of the out-breath there's a kind of moment or the sensations have abated. And let us hover for a moment at that end point. See what climate is there. Now after things have ended, where am I left? Is it white? Is it warm? Is it old or young? Is there enough? Is there too much? Is it welcoming? Just listening into that space, feeling into that space. In the gentle rhythm of this whole body breathing in, breathing out. What is the climate of mind that I experience? After breathing out, before breathing in. Take a moment, experiment, be patient. Emotions are often slow moving, not always, but often. They don't like if one points with finger, uh, fingers at them. They speak when we inhabit them, when we touch them gently. Without losing our bodies, without losing our breath, without losing the knowing faculty, we can feel and know together.
please take a stretch. If in the course of the day you shift postures, go from inside to outside, any change of situation, take a note whether this affects your uh, emotional state, whether you can feel a shift in your mood, particularly when you do contrasting things often, that is a good chance to take note of one's uh, affective um, state and what's happening there. Yeah. A small practical uh, request is that you don't do yoga outside of the yoga room and uh, leave the walking space to the walkers so that you make sure that uh, you don't leave yoga mats out there. So, uh, obvious exception is the mindful movement which you will do out there with under guidance. Yeah, good. There will be groups for some of you and for the others walking practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.